In the summer, Wayne introduced the series on Genesis in a video by saying, Genesis is a book about beginnings. It's crucially about hearing God's invite and call to follow him in a world that is choosing not to. Our world and culture is not that different. How can we grow in our love of Jesus? How can we reveal his love to those around us? We think Genesis will help us learn how. It's a bold promise. And um, uh, three sermons in, and we've already looked at God's creation and humanity in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, In the next few weeks, we'll be looking at how we understand human brokenness in the context of evolution, as well as the nature of human freedom. So just some small topics for us in the weeks ahead. Today we're heading into the eye of the political correctness storm uh, as we look at how Genesis can help us to develop a Christian response to transgenderism, which is a loose collective for the increasing number of people who would not identify as either male or female. Okay? Um, And... um, you can probably tell by just the, the collective nervousness in the room as I say that and um, some kind of silence but sharp intakes of breath um, that, that um, this, is a, this is a difficult topic. And um, I'd appreciate your prayers as, as I deliver this, that I'd be true to God's word um, and true to the person of Jesus. Um, but also that, that an invitation to you to listen back to this tomorrow, hopefully we press record, or if you want to, I can send you a transcript of what I'm saying. Uh, I don't normally write it out word for word, but because of the, the anticipation of, of people's reactions, I, I have done. So I'm going to read from Genesis 1, 26. The words are not on the screen. They're in the Bible um, at, uh, at the ends of the pews or on your phone. And as I regularly say, God knows whether you're on Twitter or not. Um, so um, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then from Genesis chapter 2, which Wayne preached on last week. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, uh, those passages um, were um, focuses of, foci of the last two talks. You'll find them online. So, if you want deeper explanations of those passages... Um, in their broader settings, listen to those talks. Um, what I'm going to do today is, is um, bring those passages into the context of our understanding um, of gender, and particularly transgenderism. It would be accurate to say 
that the world the children and youth we prayed for earlier are growing up in is vastly different to the world in which we all grew up, even the youngest of us, which I sadly can no longer count myself. Um, Aside from the fact they have no concept of a phone without a touchscreen and other technological advances, they are the first generation who are being taught in school about their gender being something they can choose. For them, it is, or it soon will be, totally normal to hear a famous person or someone they know saying that they want to be referred to as they and them, not he or she, and him or her. For us, it's either uncommon or it's never happened to us. That it is uncommon means that this morning um, there will be people for whom this is a deeply personal topic. It may be somebody in your family or a friend or a colleague. And so let's be mindful of that as we press on. I certainly am. If we're going to lead the younger generation into a Christian response, we need to understand it ourselves. And my aim this morning is to introduce us to the Christian response in such a way that you'll remember it. And to do that, I'm going to use a grammatical term um, and one that's topical, the personal pronoun, okay? Personal pronoun. Um, If you've forgotten your English grammar, don't worry. The personal uh, personal pronoun, that's I, you, he, she, it, we, they, me, us, them. It's any of those little words that refer to a person. It's a personal pronoun. And it's often the the term that will be referred to in articles when um, newspapers or um, we don't have newspapers any longer, when websites refer to people changing their identity, they'll talk about them choosing a different personal pronoun, going from he or she to they. So that's the personal pronoun. So it's going to be there in the conversations, and I want you to be aware of that, and I want you to use that as a device for remembering the Christian response. In 2014, Facebook introduced 71 genders to UK users. It's since dropped a little since then, but it's definitely not back down to two or three. Ending, they ended 10 years of just male and female options. 71. This in itself gives expression to the complex nature of transgenderism. For all of us, though, the most common point of engagement will be around the use of that um, term personal pronoun. When you hear that, I want you to think, oh yes, I remember that sermon. You don't have to remember it was by me, but I want you to think, I remember that sermon that gave me an understanding of how I can respond as a Christian. The change in people's use of personal pronoun from one to another highlights that there are two schools of thought in play here. One is that gender is chosen, and the other school of thought is that gender is given. Yeah, can we get that? Looking for, I haven't pacified everybody in my um, wordiness. Um, Gender is, on the one hand, you've got a bunch of people who think that gender is chosen. And then on the other hand, you've got a bunch of people who think that gender is given. Okay? Charities, advocacy groups, and others now teach that gender is chosen. 
The European Court of Human Rights protects our right to develop our own gender identity. And you may have seen recently a news story about a couple who have kept their baby's gender hidden for 17 months. On the other hand, the second school of thought believes that gender is given. Many atheists believe this, um, learning in biology, that our gender is given by our chromosomes. But the major faiths of the world believe that gender is given by God. Okay, can we, we can do that? People, people are looking serious. The English face looks serious and lost um, uh, in a very similar way. So I'm just checking in that, um, uh, that we're, we're, we're serious because we're concentrating, not we're lost and incapable of grasping these key concepts. If we place ourselves in Genesis, as we're encouraging us all to do, then we must see that gender is given. Reading from Genesis 1, verse 27 again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Note the word created appears three times in just those few sentences. It's the first bit of poetry in the Bible, as if to emphasize that there is a purpose to our image and our identity as male and female. Christians who read Genesis carefully acknowledge the fall that happens in the subsequent chapters, and therefore the brokenness of humanity. They're able to recognize the phenomenon of transsexuality, where it's not clear when a child is born which gender they are. And they recognize it as part of what it means for us to live in a broken world. Christians also arrive at Matthew 19, at the moment where Jesus is in the context of talking about divorce, and he acknowledges that gender isn't 100% binary, uh, because there are those who are eunuchs um, from birth, those who are born to be eunuchs, and those who are made eunuchs. It's a brief illusion, and it's the only time on the lips of Jesus that we have an acknowledgement of life outside of the binaryness of gender that we get in Genesis. So essentially, the Christian worldview has seen that gender is God-given and yet has made space for what phenomenologically is less than 1%. Does that make sense? Okay. But we have to be honest that even with that, these two schools of thought are at odds with each other. They are incompatible. Gender cannot be both given by God and chosen by us unless we are saying that we know better than God and can choose for ourselves. A position which is at odds with the declaration that Jesus is Lord. Simply, if we root our story in Genesis, whilst we might feel we are in the conceptual majority, we are at odds with the legal framework of the world around us and the world of education. That's a a posh way of saying, um, or not very posh way of saying, that basically you might feel that this isn't a problem, but if you don't watch out, this is going to become a problem. Okay? You may not agree that it is a problem, but, but actually the worldview that we have grown up in is not the worldview in which our children are growing up in. And so the world is going to look very different as they become adults 
and begin to exert influence and as they begin to raise children. So although we might feel like we're in a conceptual majority because we share opinions with people about this ethically who do not share our faith standpoint, that landscape is going to change and it's going to change drastically in the coming years. If we don't believe in Genesis as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, at what point do I start believing in the Bible? Is it after the Exodus or as we arrive at the start of the New Testament? And as I've said before, the further you go through the Bible, the harder actually it becomes to remain reasonable. Resurrection and the return of Jesus. So two schools of thought, and they tend to produce four different types of reactions in us. You don't have to remember these, but you might um, uh, connect with one of them as I say them. So denial, this will go away. At some point, this will all blow over and we'll get back to a binary understanding of gender. Um, uh, This approach, um, the positive of this is that it means that I don't have to think too much about a complex problem can bury my head in the sand. I never do that about anything in life, by the way. Um, uh, The negative is that we become disconnected from the experience of younger generations. The second is acceptance. This isn't a problem. Jesus loved everyone. The positive of this reaction is that it connects people with Jesus who are often marginalized. The negative aspects of this reaction is that it doesn't deal with either the weight of Scripture or the overwhelming statistical evidence that connects gender dysphoria with mental health issues, including self-harm and suicide attempts. There is yet to be compelling evidence that acceptance helps. And yet we're putting it into our legal frameworks There is yet to be compelling evidence that acceptance helps. And then thirdly, correction. You're wrong. Um, uh, There are two presets, male and female. The advantage of this reaction is that it's conceptually in agreement with the scriptures. The disadvantage is that you can be right in the wrong way. Anyone else been right in the wrong way at any time in their life? And it seems to be at odds with the methods of Jesus who never corrected people into his kingdom and never controlled them into relationship with himself. And then fourthly, avoidance. Similar to denial, but more spiritual. This approach says, I know it's there, but God, please keep me clear of this one. I know it's there. But please keep me clear of this one. You'll, be, you'll actually be surprised how many atheists and agnostics take this approach to it, even though they don't believe in God. They're desperate that he will keep them clear of this one. The advantage of this approach is that it casts us on the mercy of God. The negatives are that it sets us up in a separatist mentality and that it asks God to answer a prayer in a way that's totally opposite to his character. Totally opposite to his character. In Jesus, we know that he's a God who gets involved. And we're asking the God who gets involved to keep us out of harm's way. 
So that's four responses. Um, I'm not expecting you to remember all of them, um, but maybe you've connected with one or more of them. The fifth response is the response that we're looking for, and it's concealed in that term, personal pronoun. Those four responses are based on two schools of thought, two ideas, but we are not as Christians introducing people to an idea, but a person. We're not introducing people to an idea, but a person. Get it? Personal pronoun. Person is in there. Thanks. Um, In that person's death and resurrection, Jesus made it possible for us to be transformed people. He died that we would be set free from sin and death. He died that we could have a new life and live with God inside us. And he died that we would be restored in his image. He died that we would be restored in his image. And when we look at Genesis, we see that image precedes identity. We're created in his image And then in that image, we are created male and female. So as we are restored in his image, so too our understanding of our identity becomes clearer. Looking to the end, when Jesus returns... John told Christians in one of his letters that we shall see him. 1 John 3 verse 12. We shall see him, and as we see him, we will be like him. What Christians believe is that that is true now. That as we see him, his image, we are restored. Out of all of our brokenness, and this morning I'm focusing in on one area, but the truth is that all of humanity is broken, and therefore it flows that all of human sexuality is broken and in need of God's redemption. And therefore all of us, as we come into his presence, we experience his redemptive work in our brokenness. And as we see him, we become like him. In the early days of the youth movement, Soul Survivor, during worship, um, they had people coming forward and bringing condoms and knives and drugs and giving them in and saying, I don't need these anymore. Different expressions of people's repentance because they understood that their identity was being changed as they received a picture of the image of Christ. Great, but then how do we transmit that, especially if we are professionally or personally bound to respect someone's change of gender and a different use of pronoun? Uh, We begin by remembering a few things about how Jesus became personal, to us. And that's the third point. Personal pronoun, person, personal. 
Jesus didn't wait for me to have the correct theology or a correct life before he drew near to me. He didn't wait for me to get my moral life sorted before he came to save me. And I know I'm not the only one. Jesus doesn't expect people to start off with an understanding of the truth. When I I welcome people into the life of the church and you're new, I don't think, great, somebody who agrees with everything that I think and has got this down perfectly. I'm not expecting that. I'm not expecting people when they come to faith to understand that. I'm not even expecting that I get it perfectly right. But Jesus doesn't expect us to finish without truth either. He doesn't expect us to start with it. But when we travel with him, we grow into the truth. And sometimes that's difficult because the culture wants to take us in a different direction. As he becomes truly personal to us, he begins to fill us with a desire for his truth and how we can live it out in the world in which we live. So we begin our response with remembering how Jesus, the person, became personal to us. And we continue to acknowledge that that same person is making his personal appeal through us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. As we engage with children and colleagues, friends and families to be truly personal, to be effective ambassadors, we must understand that this issue is deeply personal to people, agonizing in fact, but also that the personal appeal of the person of Jesus, the source of our ultimate healing and salvation, is being made through us. It's being made through us. And the only way for us to do that is to know that all we've got to offer is him. All I've got to offer is him. Now, at this point in the sermon, I would normally try to bring it into land with a story. And I, generally speaking, spend the week beforehand thinking, what's the story, God, that you want to tell? And I've been asking that question all week. And generally speaking, the stories give illustration to what is said conceptually, so that if you can't remember all the words, you can at least remember the story, and from that then remember the concepts. But the problem is, I don't have a story for you this morning. I don't have a story for you this morning And if I'm honest, I don't know many people that do. I don't have a story of where I know somebody who has been transformed in this. And alarmingly, that shows me that a gap has emerged between the church and those who are experiencing trauma around their gender. And I can't confess to understand that gap, but I know that it's there. And I know 
from the scriptures that the arm of the Lord is not too short to save anyone. And I don't want to be involved in a church that's reversing that truth. So we need some stories that make this personal and make it true. Obviously, for good reasons, stories that we don't tell from the front. But this must become personal. And so my invitation for us all this morning is to pray and repent and intercede and acknowledge that this is a problem that we're all in together and that we all face and to come before God and ask for his power and his mercy to be at work in and through us. Amen.